Know your neighbor. It's not asking much. Simple, humane, and we'd like to think a logical approach. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Know Your Neighbor is a platform for constructive but brutally honest discussion on varying perspectives of race relations. Yes, it can often be viewed as complex, and to be fair, it probably is. We're approaching it in a simple way, by having a conversation about it, allowing perspectives that oppose our own, and listening to understand. The aim? To know your neighbor. This simple gesture should be better for us all. Hi, my name is Keenan Carlsa. I'm a South African currently living in the United Kingdom. Being outside of South Africa has actually just made me realize more how much I love it. How's it and welcome to all the listeners. Wandi Limatondo here, born and raised in KZN Mlazi, now living in Johannesburg. Trust you guys will enjoy the podcast. And I'm Aubrey Rue, a 32-year-old Afrikaans-speaking white guy living in Cape Town. So we've got Stephanie Riers. Stephanie, welcome. Great to have you join us on, on Know Your Neighbor this evening. Just a little bit on Stephanie's background. Stephanie's a South African architect and urbanist and her research focuses on design for social change, urban studies, planning and policy making in post-colonial territories, particularly South Africa. She works within a transdisciplinary and action research framework where she engages with a variety of scientific and non-scientific collaborators and stakeholders to address real-world problems and induce change. A doctoral research at ETH Zurich, Department of Landscape and Urbanism focuses on lived realities and informal settlements after dark. Fear of crime affects nightly routines. Great and effective public lighting could mean positive change in every nightlife. She tries to understand these lived realities as a design tool so that public infrastructure addresses the need, needs and aspirations in informal settlements to improve every nightlife. So Stephanie, that is right up our alley. And what I found particularly interesting about that is, I think you call it like the real life example. So just out of huge curiosity, like how did you get into this kind of line of, of studying research? What kind of planted the seeds of that? And what are you physically doing at this stage? That's interesting. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's exciting for me to be on a podcast that deals with uh, the diversity that South Africa is and speaking, you know, from diverse backgrounds, but yet on our rich rainbow nation, I I think it's really exciting. Um, And that's exactly, I guess, where my research inspiration comes from. I've always been aware of the diversity that I live within, not just uh, in a good way, but also in a bad way. So living in incredibly in an equal country has always impacted me from a very, very young age. I studied architecture and within that frame, you know, you deal a lot with luxury housing and big corporate developments and, and our professors especially encouraged us to, you know, look at architecture that also helps people who can't necessarily afford 
to pay for an architect. So looking at, you know, larger scale projects of, of affordable housing, and that also then made me more interested in urban design rather than architecture, because this really deals more with, with the spatial inequality that we have in South Africa. And from that, I, I worked at Design Space Africa with Yuandem Pashwa, and his work was all about, you know, design for social change. And mm-hmm. I worked there for three years. And from there, I realized I wanted to do more. And that in order to really do these kinds of projects uh, where you need to do research, uh, really requires research uh, because you're dealing with complexities that, you know, a quick design can't change alone. You first need some really intense research before doing that. And that led me to look for PhD positions. And I found one in, in Zurich and, and that was in 2017. I began my PhD and I just recently finished it. And uh, yeah, I can talk a bit more about that later. Well, actually, um, now you've got me very curious. So, so please continue and, and tell us a bit about that. When I started my PhD, the topic that I had to deal with was public lighting. My funder was a, is, well, was a lighting company and they wanted me to do something about public lighting. And that combined with my interest in spatially undoing inequality and apartheid inequality led to looking at the kind of lighting that one finds in townships which happens to be apartheid planned lighting and that still exists today. So you've got these extremely bright lights uh, flooding the the rooftops, but no light actually enters into the informal settlement. And so that was the basis for the research. And from there, I really started looking at, okay, but what is it like at night in informal settlements? You know, how, how are people experiencing nighttime and how can an improved uh, public lighting solution improve nighttime experiences? Mm-hmm. Did you uh, send out surveys? How did you do those surveys to actually gather the research that you that you ended up using? So firstly, I worked um, as as my bio, my very mouthful bio <laughs> said. Uh, I'm a transdisciplinary researcher, and this means that I work with different disciplines in academia, but also with non scientific stakeholders. So. Uh, city officials, you know, the the councillors, the NGOs, and also local communities on the ground. And my work was, because of the interdisciplinarity of it, uh, there was a quantitative component of the work, which my research partner dealt with, and I sort of assisted with that, which involved a full household survey of uh, 760-something households. And my qualitative research was really more ethnographic. So being there, being on the ground, sleeping over in the informal settlement that I worked in and really doing a lot of experimental methods like giving people cameras uh, to take photos of their nighttime experiences, doing keywording workshops. I even did a theatre workshop with my friend Mandisi Sindo and he's a community art director in Kailicha. And he, he did an exercise called vocal imagery where young kids would have to make the sounds of the nighttime. And so all these very, very interesting methods led to quite a holistic understanding of nighttime experiences. If you ever want to explain apartheid to someone, take Cape Town because it just also has the colonial background included into the apartheid history. And Kailicha is just unbelievably segregated still from from the rest of Cape Town. And so as an example, especially for Europeans who don't really understand the extent to the spatial division in in South Africa, Cape Town also worked really well to show, you know, the realities on the ground. 
just on that, Steph, what was like some of the main topics that you came out with throughout your studies in terms of people's lived experiences in terms of spatial inequality? I mean, the major thing is just that every, you know, every day and everything that you do from the simple thing like going to the toilet or fetching water or visiting your friend is just that much more of a struggle. Everything takes longer. Everything is more exhausting. Everything is more tired. So, so you know, going to work takes two hours. Getting Then you get back from work and then you have to still uh, do your household chores, but it's already dark outside. And then how do you go outside to do your household chores if, if you're too afraid to be outside? And so, you know, one thing, and this is also why I love my country so much, is regardless of, of these very, very hard uh, everyday experiences that, that people in the informal settlement where I worked in had, uh, they still were positive and welcoming uh, to me. And I'm a, you know, white Afrikaans female. I took a while to reveal that I was Afrikaans for, you know, I mean, you never know if people might uh, stereotype you. And so, but but yet I was really welcomed there. And, and especially when I slept over, people really welcomed me into their home as if I was family. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that, that um you know, that the, the current, well, to a large extent, the current lighting is still kind of the infrastructure that was created by the apartheid government. And you, you mentioned that it was, you know, that there were specific ways in which it was installed that to this day it's recognizable. So what were the earmarks of that other than it being tall? And, and what was the reasoning back then for using that? And then what are the solutions to that? Basically, the apartheid government had two branches. There were more the securocrats, who were all about military and security and, um, you know, really like troops in the township kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there were also the reformists who believed in upgrading informal settlements and upgrading townships to try and win over. And actually, this was a program's name. It was called Winning Over the Hearts and Minds. It was and shortened to WAM. That was an official program during the late apartheid Mm -hmm. era. And this was the reformist approach to getting black South Africans to, to buy into the apartheid system, let's say rather, but Hamas lighting suited, I know it's crazy. crazy. Hamas lighting suited both of these securocrats and reformers, because on the one side, the reformers were saying, Oh, well, we're putting infrastructure into townships and we're making, you know, putting public lighting in and whatever. But the securocrats were saying, well, this is great because it's surveillance and we can see, we can see better, Uh, you know, the military can actually surveil more effectively. And the lighting was also placed sort of on the periphery of the township and never quite inside, which also gives a bit more of a a sense of control, especially if you look, you know, I mean, why wouldn't you put the the light in the public square Um, Mm -hmm. if if it was meant to light for the public? No, it wasn't. It was meant to control the public and you wouldn't want people to gather in a public space at night uh, as the apartheid mm. government. So that's it was, the, it was designed with the oppressor in mind. It was designed with the oppressor in mind yeah. and then also, you know, disguised as, oh, we're putting infrastructure in and this is good. And it was much cheaper than providing electricity for all houses. So actually townships were electrified purely for high mass lighting and for schools and hospitals. So houses did not receive domestic electricity um, mm-hmm. and they only received electricity after high-mass lights were even installed. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit the history of the lighting and, um, and 
the the solution that I, I realized I didn't mention earlier that um, my research was an action research project, which means researching and actually making an action on the ground, a project on the ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, we implemented um, in the informal settlement that we worked with in, in, in PJS, informal settlement in Kailicha, we installed 786 roundabout, I think, wall-mounted solar lights. So basically every house got their own solar-powered light which is a public light, but it's also their own private light. So you're bridging kind of public infrastructure with, yeah. with a sense of ownership over the infrastructure. And this was mounted above or close to the household's front door. And this effectively lit the pathways, right? Because you're now lighting from within the pathway and not from above uh, the, the settlement. Just on that, you know, like we, we've mentioned now that the high mass lighting was a, a part that government um, project. What kind of projects has like the, the new government, uh, Cape Town, what kind of projects have they like initiated to help with these kind of issues? Has there been any um, developments in that sense? I mean, that's also the reason why this research was so important because there was just a continuous deployment of high mass lighting and, and you know, um, NGOs like the Social Justice Coalition that I work closely with, they, they're really activists and they would raise these issues of, of the need for more effective public lighting, not only for community members, but for policing too, because police don't feel comfortable to patrol and to walk around in informal settlements because they can't see and they can't, so they can't even effectively do their job. And so this was raised over and over and, and the kind of result was always, um, okay, we have decided that we will install more high-mass lights. And it's like, no, guys, you're missing the point completely. They, they don't work. They're completely ineffective. Yeah. But through, the, through a lot of engagement with the city of Cape Town, we've actually managed to sort of, well, get their interest and, and gain their interest in the project. And they've gone for a site visit to our project and, and they've shown quite a lot of interest. There was a public request for information for alternative forms of public lighting in informal settlements. And they really kind of described this solution that we used of wall-mounted lighting and are now further exploring that solution as we speak. Can I just do one more? Um, I think like lighting, 27 years after the end of apartheid, you would think that could be such a easy thing to fix, you know? And um, like there's so, still so little movement to kind of like uh, create solutions and stuff. Do you think like the, the South African government, Cape Town municipality, whatever provincial governments are, are a bit lackluster in, in like trying to just improve the, the, the informal settlements? Do you think there's a bit of a lackluster um, approach to these kind of things? Uh, I mean, I definitely think so. I think, um, I mean, that's why I was so surprised that my research, which seems so basic, right, uh, looking at nighttime, the impact of public lighting and informal settlements, like it's, it seems so basic, but it was totally never researched. Yeah. And so even in academia, this, this hasn't been looked at and hasn't been taken seriously. And I don't know whether it's just because methodologically it's quite complicated to, to pay attention to the night and to really look at public lighting and nighttime and because it's dangerous, because it's not easy to access these spaces at night and all these sorts of things. So from a researcher's perspective, there's also this kind of gap, huge gap in research. And then 
I think it's it's equally for that reason that it was just too complicated for or the government to look at. And, and I think it's not a good enough excuse. And I think that's why one needs uh, these kinds of activist NGOs like Social Justice Coalition who make the government accountable for what they they need to provide public lighting. It's in their mandate to provide public lighting. And I think one of the outputs of the research should be holding governments accountable for services, public services, and especially in places like informal settlements. And so, yeah, I agree with you. But instead of taking that approach, I took the approach of, okay, fine, I'm going to like lead the way for the city and try and, and, and collaborate and reinforce uh, yep. some kind of uh, project and, and or change in policy at least. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think like um, that approach is, is, is required more from just normal citizens like you and me, you know, because um, all of us, we can all like throw our five cents in in terms of complaining. But um, if some of us can be um, proactive, uh, like be ambitious in terms of doing our own research, in terms of PhD that you're doing now, but also then contributing to, you know, your public life in terms of giving suggestions of how things can be improved. I think as, um, yeah, as just South Africans in general, that is definitely something that we should be doing more of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and not just suggestions, but actually an actual project, right? So so we implemented this project because we can suggest as much as we want. The city will not believe or government won't believe something until they see it. Yeah. And so we did this project. It was a success. And only after we finished and showed, you know, proved to be successful, did the city really start to pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also the, the benefit of doing these kind of small pilot projects um, as an evidence base for the city to to change, yeah, change its ways and, and change its policies and, and and move forward to to more suitable infrastructure solutions. I'm also wondering if there aren't any other kind of forces at play because you know, it, it, just in the sense that the kind of lack of lighting in certain areas may have suited the apartheid government at the time, but. Are there not other groups or even gangs that you mentioned earlier that perhaps kind of prefer it that way and might, I don't know, just work against projects that might want to enhance basic services? I don't know if that's the case, but that is a thought. Like when I was thinking about it practically, Keenan, I had exactly the same thought. Like a light surely can't be that hard. I don't know if you've come across any of those. No, for sure. I mean implementing any kind of infrastructure project, uh, especially in informal settlements, is extremely complicated. And that is why it is so important to have a a participatory approach Mm. in the design, the implementation, the maintenance, the whole whole package has to be participatory. Mm. You have Mm. to have local people in whichever neighborhood you're working in that are taking care of the lights, that are paid by the government, you know, as the same as how we have the government has a a program called EPWP, which is like the expanded public works program for all the people you see on the streets, cleaning the streets, whatever, Mm. they're receiving a salary. So they can use that kind of um, program, but employing people from very, very, very locally from the local um, neighborhoods. Um, And as a result, you know, people really not only, you know, if something because things do happen with the lights, you know, there are incidents where where lights were vandalized and stolen, surprisingly, not as many as we thought. But the moment that a light gets stolen, because there's such a huge sense of ownership over the project Mm. that gets reported immediately to the local team by a community member. 
as opposed to if it was the city, uh, you know, installing the lights, the, the community member wouldn't know who to report it to. Do they phone the That's hotline? Do they, they don't have airtime. Yeah. All these stupid things that are seem so like uh, frivolous, they, they really, really impact uh, the success of a project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are really important uh, components to consider and to really take seriously. And everybody, you know, all the NGOs always say participation, participation, but participation cannot just be a box that you tick, you know, as, as the government, it really needs to be taken seriously as the foundation of a project that, that will ultimately mean success or failure. Mm. Yeah, the word ownership really stands out there. Yeah, and also, I mean, just just things, and that's why this is such a complex thing, infrastructure provision um, in, in informal settlements especially, um, is that, you know, our history, our apartheid history, um, means that so many people were not considered for such a long time. And, and this still plays out in today's society yeah. where yeah. it is so important for someone to feel considered understandably and mm. so if if and 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 trust is a huge issue with government um today still and so if someone just comes in there and implements a project without consulting without participation you're just breaking the trust completely of, yeah. of any community member and so it's also about this this development of trust and a sense of like we care and consider your thoughts and needs and and inputs are very, and we take it very seriously. Stephanie, maybe to, to kind of wrap things up and not to take away from any of the kind of real challenges in South Africa, um, but I'm just thinking about a, a recent program that I watched, which was kind of on how architects in Asia had kind of designed cities and spaces to really kind of make kind of neighborhoods and even blocks kind of made up of of people with different means and how design has been used to kind of facilitate social change mm-hmm. and just globally in terms of what you see out there um obviously you live abroad what you're exposed to there what you see in south africa i mean we have a very particular past if we went into like big picture ideal like what, what are the kind of key elements of design that really make a difference um i mean i don't think that there's elements but there's concepts that need to be considered for for infrastructure design and and things like adaptability that infrastructure doesn't just serve one group and one set of cultural practices but that infrastructure is able to cater to a variety of different groups and also temporalities you know that infrastructure is able to somehow work in the day work at night it's adaptable it's kind of a dynamic thing, right? And not just something that gets put in place that doesn't get changed ever. And that's kind of completely stuck, let's say. And so I would say one of the major things, and that's something that I'm now beginning to look at is, is this thing of adaptable infrastructure with uh, my colleague at ETH, Sepe de Blust. Uh, he's actually focusing on that and busy uh, researching that and looking at how infrastructure that is more adaptable can really become more resilient and really make the change like you say the special change that you need and also that that you know because if you think about I'm, I'm again referring to south africa i know you've gone globally a bit now but but things like um the infrastructure that was implemented like the road networks and train mm. you know train networks obviously those things are a bit more challenging to be adaptable but those are so hard to undo because they're mm. so set and so um you know 
absolutely the opposite of adaptable and how mm. difficult it is to undo this kind of uh, infrastructure as opposed to building something that has more room for maneuvering and for change um, yeah, for, for an uncertain future, right? The whole world is an uncertain place. Um, yeah. Climate change, uh, et cetera, yeah. And, and to like complete novices to the, to the subject, like what would practical examples of adaptability be in in some in infrastructure well i think this is where we can learn from informality again but it's these kinds of spaces that one can call temporal that ephemeral things disappear and change and come and go and just like in an informal settlement a public square you know during the day might become a private courtyard at night just because of Mm. the community's decision to do that and to make it that way Mm. and then you know on Sundays it might become a church and 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 this kind of multi-use and adaptability of space and how can you make public space with multiple actors in mind something that's quite topical in South Africa from time to time there's like a a suggestion that low-cost housing as an example or a low-cost development had to happen at a quite a central place in Cape Town. And then there's like this, like from from different, let's call it stakeholders, there's like different views and it becomes quite a big thing in the media. And and how has that worked? Like, do, do you have knowledge of how that's worked globally? Like, does it work to mix people of, of very different, in, in a South African context, like LSM, cultural, maybe I'm going to speak for, for everyone who might be listening, like cultural backgrounds, like, does that work? Yeah. I mean, I heard recently about how Amsterdam is handling things these days. And because they also have, you know, uh, Europe's making a lot of the same mistakes that South Africa made of of low, you know, all the, the immigrants that are coming in that are seeking asylum or, or, or that are from a very low income background, they're developing like these massive social housing projects on the periphery. And it's just, yeah, it's just creating huge, huge issues. And a new approach that Amsterdam is now taking is to buy up properties in the city centre, and these are small little houses, turn those into social housing so that you Mm. are placing people really in the centre of the city and, Mm. you know, ordinary housing that you have in, you know, little row houses in Amsterdam and one of them is a social housing and the next one is a very wealthy family home whatever yeah but it's it's a topic and it's not honestly i i i wish i had because i'm not a specialist in housing and i wish i had a perfect project to name but i think yeah i mean in in europe or let's say in brussels is where i'm now currently based i definitely notice for example across the road from me there's actually a squat and it's in the city center and my building is kind of a middle income building and then the building next door to me is an extremely wealthy woman living there. And so I do notice, but I think this is happening. I don't know if this is a systematic thing where the government mm. is making decisions to try and, and increase integration or whether this is just yard yeah, organic process that happens mm. as buildings mm. deteriorate, uh, less wealthy people move in and then the buildings mm. get upgraded and, and wealthier people take over and, and so on and so forth. I don't know. Okay. Well, if you do ever hear of any any examples, uh, keep us posted. That would be very, very interesting. I will. I'm going to have a yeah. look after <laughs> we speak now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll this, this, 
just on that topic, guys. Um, yeah, I, I, when, whenever I think of South Africa, like I always think of like what my dad and them say, like it's expensive to be poor because literally that example of um, integrating um, uh, lower income people in the city centers is is like such a massive uh, improvement for people because if you just think of it like logically, a poor person needs to travel into the city to actually go to work and like an Amiga salary, right? Then half of his salary or his or her salary goes just for the travel to get there, right? So um, like just in, 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 in logical terms, it makes a massive difference for those people just to give people a better quality of life and so forth. But then again, like there's there's different considerations with all of these things. My last question to you, um, Stephanie, just um, you've lived in South Africa, you've had experience in the informal settlements, you're living abroad now as well. What what do you have to add, like in terms of the environment that South Africans have to live in, compared to the environment that people abroad, Europe, for instance, have to live in? And how much does our environment play a role in the life that we? experiences in Africa as individuals? Yeah, a lot. I mean, that's a huge, huge topic for me personally. And also part of the reason that I have to kind of decide whether I want to live in Europe as much as I love my country, because I am an urbanist. I love to live in the city center. I love to walk everywhere I go. I love to have a a beer in a public square that I bought from the corner shop. And all of these and, you know, walk home at three in the morning if I want to as a woman and not feel afraid and also have the infrastructure to be able to walk home, you know, having pathways, having well-lit streets and and all these sorts of things. And, and that is something that South Africans just don't have across the board from, from the poorest to the richest is we do not have a sense of freedom, mm. uh, individual freedom and liberty to move, to, to be able to just go to the, the shop without thinking about one's safety and also, yeah, just, just to comfortably be outside. And I think crime is a byproduct of bad urban planning too. You know, it's, it's, we aren't catering for pedestrians and cyclists um, in our cities. And so that's, that's really a lived experience that, that urban planning is really impacting every single day of our lives. And one of the major reasons why I, so much enjoy living in Europe is is because I have the ability to just be free here. Yeah. Mm. Just to add my my five cents on that particular topic as well. Living in London, yeah, for for my wife and just being honest, that's always a consideration in terms of the freedom that we do experience here. So yeah, I mean I think like people people like you are making a, a positive contribution in terms of the spatial planning, things like infrastructure that we can develop. Well, hopefully, like um, make a big difference in terms of the level of freedom that we as South Africans can experience when we reside in South Africa. So, yeah, man, thank you for all, all your research and uh, projects that you guys have been doing and still still researching. Yeah, I think it, even if if, if it's a, on, a, on a small scale for now, seven hundred families, it's it's making a massive difference. I I believe through what you've told us. So, thanks, man. All all, all the success with your your future uh, research as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having having me on, on the podcast. I really, yeah, I enjoyed our chat. Same here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thank you.